Panache, Anin, Bujo, Panse, Dan, Dishanakashon, Ne Moikishkatan, Ni Achimo, Ein Nistoir, Nandao, Li Razad. Hi, my name is Dan. I am here to tell a story about beads, and it's nice to meet you. Amazing. Thank you, Dan. Um, before we talk about who we are and why we're here, can you explain what you just said? What was the language that you were speaking in? So that was Machif. That is the traditional language of uh, the Métis Nation. It's spoken mainly in parts of Saskatchewan, Manitoba and North Dakota, as well as a few smatterings here and there, like in Oxford currently. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. It's, um, there's about a little bit less than a thousand native speakers, though, so it's a quite small language. So my name's Josie Kettle uh, and I am the project curator on Beyond the Binary, a National Lottery Heritage funded project taking place at the Pitt Rivers at the moment and I'm lucky enough to be here at the moment with Dan who is one of our community curators and we're here to talk a little bit about the material that you've been researching and curating for the project exhibition um, and learn a little bit about your interests really and all the amazing work that you've been undertaking um, in partnership with the project. So first of all can you, um, you've introduced yourself amazingly um, but can you tell us a little a little bit more about yourself and um, what drew you to the project and um, why you why you become a community curator. So um, I am a recent graduate from Oxford. I've completed my master's here and I really wanted to get involved again with a museum and the community curator project for the Beyond the Binary was an exceedingly generous and amazing program that I wanted to jump in on. Um, I had done museum work before at the National Museum of the American Indian in the Smithsonian and um, I'm interested mainly in uh, American Indian, specifically Métis beadwork, and the Pitt Rivers has a wonderful collection that is actually displayed, which I was quite pleased to see, of some Métis beadwork, um, mainly mittens and some bandolier bags and some octopus bags. So I was very keen to see that and work with that. And before we talk a little bit more about the um, the beadwork on display in the museum, can you tell me about what you've got on today? Do you mind? You've got an amazing um, uh, <laughs> necklace <Yes>. on. <laughs> I wore, um, I have my Strong Resilient Indigenous shirt. It's a wonderful brand. And I also have one of these um, horse head medallions that I've made. Um, with a multitude of beads. I could not tell you how many there are. Um, and the museum is actually going to get one of these. Um, I'm going to be making, I believe, a paint horse for them. Beadwork, it is, it's a wonderful art form. Um, I find that it's calming. And also some artists will say beading is medicine. It levels you. It makes you a little bit more in tune with your surroundings. And it also connects you to an art form that, you know, we are known as the flower beadwork people. It connects me to my ancestors. Each little bead is that little connection sewn and looped in. So that's why I enjoy doing it. Amazing. Thank you. And it's um, a really amazing red colour as well. It's really <laughs> vibrant. Um, so, yes, the plan is, Dan, that you're creating a, a, an item for the Pitt Rivers handling collection, a beadwork um, horse head. So that's really exciting. Um, and I think we'll talk more in a minute about the um, other object you're creating for the main, main collection. So, um, what what have you actually been doing? So, what what's your what have you been doing to research your material and that you're writing about? Um, have you been writing? Have you been um, like recording? What, what can you tell me about what you've been up to? So, I've been doing a lot of individual research with this specific collection item at the Pitt Rivers. It's um, known as eighteen ninety three point sixty seven point one eighty three. That's the accession number, also known as the S Black Bag also known as the octopus bag. Which <laughs> many guises. <laughs> many names, yes. Um, and it is this bag that was probably made in the early um, 1800s. 
It was collected by Pitt Rivers in 1893. Um, it, it was acquired by the museum, and it is a beautiful, very large panel-style um, octopus bag. And it is gorgeous, and it's a very pivotal object because it succinctly describes the Métis identity. Um, Métis people, as an ethnic group, um, are formed of two, in a way, heritages, heritage and lineage. Um, you have the French and um, European fur traders that came over to do trading and set up forts and businesses with colonialism, with settler um, <laughs> initiatives. Mm -hmm. And then you have this joining of that community with the original First Nations community to create this dualistic new birth of a nation, basically. So this bag succinctly, rec um, succinctly identifies that because you have European motifs with these beautiful tulips. You have um, European-style motifs of love with the heart, the wool shroud bag, the actual cloth that it's made from. But then you also have this indigenous um, flair with the prairie roses, um, as well as these beautiful seed beads that are attached to it. Is is the style of the bag itself traditional? It's um, so we we call it an octopus bag um, in the collections, but I'm not sure if that's what it would be known as um, uh, locally. And it's um, it's called an octopus bag because it's got it's got four legs, right, but with two sides each, yes. so eight eight legs. Yes. <laughs> it's um, we we put a picture in the podcast, um, but yeah, can you tell me a bit more about yeah. um, the meaning of the bag? Um, yeah. So um, <laughs> these bags have also been made in. Um, as well as um, Pacific Northwest cultures, um, a little bit different materials used. They've also been mimicked in uh, Anishinaabe bandolier bags. They're, they're quite similar, similar functions. Um, you're carrying flint, you're carrying tobacco, you're carrying ammunition. The Métis bag specifically is usually a flat panel bag um, to carry ammunition, not necessarily. It, it, it can't hold that much. But it, it gets the job done for long journeys when you're either following buffalo herds um, or you're out hunting and trapping and coming back from long occasions. Yeah. <laughs> so cause it's really beautiful, like you say, but, um, but it's also quite functional. So that's really yeah. interesting. That it's, um, it's very usable, but mm -hmm. also really beautiful. Um, I was wondering, if could you tell me a little bit more about the meaning of beadwork to you personally <laughs> and possibly in um, yeah. the Métis culture as you see it? So Métis people, we are recognizable from our beadwork, especially with flower motifs, when the, it's usually, it's usually accepted that when the gray nuns came um, to set up residential schools, which depending on how you view it is, is somewhat of a sordid history for indigenous people, um, they would teach the First Nations women certain skills and one of them was needlework. And so you had these European patterns and motifs that they would first start with and then later the women would say well let's let's apply this to what's actually around me and they would do more indigenous flora and fauna and build up upon that to actually make a highly recognizable m form of beadwork um, and so other nations started to view us as people who were very very prolific with beadwork um, uh, other Métis artists sometimes use quills in their work sometimes they use um, specific it, there's this um, 
craft called moose tuffing, and it uses moose hair. So that's another one. I have never done quill work, and I've never done moose tuffing. (laughs) But beadworking was an accessible form of me to connect with my culture. Um, I was a disconnected native. I knew my grandmother told me about our history when I was very young. But I was very young, and I was more interested in cartoons and drawing in my coloring book. Um, My grandmother knew the language Machif. My dad knew it when he was younger, but he later lost those skills when they moved from Canada to the United States. I only visited um, our traditional territories in uh, Winnipeg a handful out of the year when I was young. So I was separated from the land, separated from the culture, separated from the language. And our elders constantly tell us, you need to rekindle the hearth fires of home. You need to make those connections and rebuild those connections. It's hard, but in the end, it is worth it. And so I started to do that. Um, my language skills, if any of the Machif <laughs> listeners listening to this will say, oh, that is terrible. Yes, it is, but at least I'm trying. <laughs> um, and beadwork for me was something that was so Métis that I felt it, it, it could be something I could grasp onto and feel comfortable in my heritage. So through beadwork, you've, um, it's been a way of you exploring your identity. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and I would, unfortunately, some um, the records that I would be able to find out about my family when my grandmother had blanks in her memory were from <laughs> land scripts, and that was a way that the Canadian government, in a way, would try to negotiate Métis people. Were they were they Indians, like, or were they white people? It was mm-hmm. a very um, interesting way of trying to re- uh, remedy that. So, but I would also come across these little tidbits talking about how, oh, yes, and then this one uh, great-grandfather of mine, you know, wore a beautiful beadwork vest or did this or did that. And I said, well, okay, I want to incorporate that into my story. And that's why I started to do the horse heads because I had a relative who, one of the anecdotes was he cured someone of some illness and in and payment he was given this beautiful little black mare with a white blaze on her. So I made that horse medallion and I something to connect me to them. Amazing. So they, those family stories, they, so they, were they learnt through your grandmother, you said? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, amazing. It's Yeah, she's very happy that I've started to do beadwork. Mm. She herself is not the best sewer, but <laughs> she'll frame anything that I give her. So that's very nice. Sounds like a, a big fan. Almost as big a fan as the Pit Rivers is of your beadwork. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> amazing. Um, so... Um, is there, I, I'm kind of, um, my questions um, to warm us up are kind of partway through now. So um, I, I really want to talk to you about Two Spirit and things like that. Mm-hmm. But is there anything else that you wanted to share about um, uh, the, the object that you're researching or the museum and anything um, anything you want to talk about <laughs> generally before we maybe move on to Two Spirit? Well, I know the narrative of being uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, American Indian, it comes part and parcel with colonialism. And that is a very important part of the story and the narrative. But I also think these bags um, in the, you know, in the 1800s, these bags, and from forward, I've seen people wear these beautiful bags and during powwows and regalia dances. And the tradition has kept on. We've been through so many struggles and yet we're so resilient and we rise above it and we keep our culture and I encourage any indigenous youth, especially if they're disconnected like I was, to start rebuilding those connections because it is worth it. And how so? How do you see um, the um, like a museum like the Pit Rivers is um, kind of part to play in that? Do, do you think museums do have a part to play? Museums definitely do, especially when they become stewards of these objects. Um, 
I know the Pit Rivers is especially working with the Haida uh, communities, and instead of buying um, artifacts from the ground, and, and instead of doing that, they're actually commissioning artists and bringing money and connections back to the community in a, in a cycle that's a little bit more healthier than if you were to take, you know, objects from the ground or, you know, buy them from um, <laughs> private collectors. I think it's important that museums recognize that if you house these items, these are someone's family traditional items, patrilineal items. Someone can look into this museum and say, oh, yes, that was my great grandfather's or something. And you need to be keenly aware that if you're using these objects, they have a history, they have a story. They're not just static, inanimate objects. Yeah. And so with, with um, the, the octopus bag that you're um, mm-hmm. writing about for the exhibition and we're talking about today, um, it's on permanent display in the museum in our, one of our beadwork sections. What, what would you like to see the outcome of your um, research being? So um, the, the object currently has a very small label, it's very basic. How would you like to see um, the, the rich layers of interpretation that you're bringing to the object? Kind of, um, would you like it to be shown permanently alongside the object? How, how would you like to see um, an object like the, the octopus bag um, better displayed with more relevance to you as a, um, you know, someone who's very connected to the object? I would think, I mean, a label that invokes the idea of, oh yeah, so this isn't just a nice piece of fashion. I mean, it's gorgeous. It is a beautiful bag, and I, whenever I get a chance to look at the close-up of the um, edging and the stitching, I just I can't fathom how how long this person sat at making everything completely perfect. Um, but I would like t- someone to come away from this bag and saying there is a, a a connection between however many people from two different sides of the world, from Turtle Island and Europe. And this is just one of the narratives of that culture clash. And something happened where, you know, this bag signifies the birth of a nation, of of a new type of people, of a new type of language and culture and way of viewing the world. I don't know if you can all fit that in a label. (laughs) I think that's a little bit of of a task. But, yeah, I also want people to realize that we're not, the whole native stereotype of just feathers and and paint and and like no we we do have fine crafts in art and we're very skilled artists in our trades mm-hmm. i think that's really it's so important to bring um i think challenge challenge stereotypes like you're saying but also um it's really how we bring to an object like the octopus bag these multiple stories and how um really a label is not in, not adequate for that so hopefully by creating these kind of recordings we can slowly start to create more layers but i think um, what you've highlighted is the, the sheer inadequacy of um of museum labeling so it's, it's work for us to continue exploring and this is brilliant to have some uh, recorded uh, pointers for our, our team thank at the you museum. for being so generous and letting the community no no have, have you have you been i can't remember if you've had a research visit with the bag yet Dan. yes you, i have you've seen it up close i was not expecting how big it was it's huge um it's 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 truly amazing and when you get down to the detail of how this artist interwove the the threading on it oh i I couldn't even oh i would go (laughs) cross-eyed if i tried to do that um but definitely it is a a piece of ingenious and i love the fact that it it truly takes the technologies from two different worlds that you see very Mm -hmm. Um, antagonistic and it makes something beautiful mm. out of them that's really interesting yeah so so the um 
the kind of coalescing of two different worlds and the idea that there, you know, there's a huge antagonism now. Uh, antag- <laughs> I can't speak. The antagonism between those two worlds, but the the fact you're saying a beautiful objects come out mm-hmm. of it that's, that t- can tell such a complex story. That's really yeah. lovely. Um, can you maybe tell me a little bit about the the bag that you're making mm-hmm. to go alongside the octopus yes. bag? <laughs> so it's going to be half the size of this beautiful monstrosity. <laughs> Just to explain to anyone listening, the uh, the beautiful monstrosity <laughs> is uh, cut is 610 uh, millimeters. Um, tall and 280 millimeters wide according to our accession notes <laughs> to give you a picture of what <laughs> it is. River six very good notes. <laughs> um, yes and um, I'm keeping with the traditional flower and woodland motif that is prevalent in many Métis um, art styles so there will be flowers and there will be swirls and there will be um, that patterning. The bag, the original bag, the S black bag keeps the tradition of having the four corners, um, which is very prevalent in Métis artwork. So it shows the four corners, which are very sacred to um, Native traditions, um, as well as showing the four stages of vegetation. It shows the roots, the buds, the actual blooms, and the leaves of the fruit of the plant. So everything is accounted for in these four sacred directions in these four sacred um, categories. So I'm going to take that tradition for the new bag, but have a little bit more fun with the colors and the symbols because this bag is, if I was to make this bag for someone else, it would probably be for like a two-spirit regalia at a powwow. I want it to say loud and proud. So I'm going to incorporate like for the rosebuds, um, instead of your traditional green and pink, I'm going to have a little bit of blue, pink and white for the trans flag. Um, the edging that you see on the original bag, um, the S black bag, instead of just the plain, beautiful ivory, it's going to be rainbow <laughs> stitch. Um, we will keep be keeping the European heart, but we'll also be including strawberries, Odei Min. So you have the European version of love, and then you have the strawberries, which are the heart berries for the indigenous uh, motif. So trying to bring those two worlds back together. <laughs> That's really amazing. I think um, you're highlighting so well that every um, symbol on the every um, object uh, image on the original bag has has meaning. Mm-hmm. I think we often forget that in the museum. Um, there's a cacophony of kind of patterns and colours, although many of the artefacts are um, sun bleached and, and quite brown. Um, we just see a, kind of an explosion of different designs and patterns, whereas it's really important to remember that everything on, on um, particularly this bag is has a meaning to it so I think the bag that you're creating for the collection will really highlight that the fact that you're putting continuing to put European symbols of love next to indigenous symbols I think that's really exciting and we we make sure that we actually tell the, the story that it's not um, the original story about that object is not disconnected and lost like so often is what happens in, in um, the museum situation so I can't wait to see the bag it's really exciting yeah um I was going to ask you to maybe talk a little bit about your um, thoughts on um, the term two spirit. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to discuss before we moved on to that? Um, I'm just, I I just, I can't wait to really start finishing the details on this bag because it's the best kind of work ever, ever. It's connecting to your culture and also relaxing and knowing that you're producing something that will be shared and enjoyed for as many people has come to this wonderful 
Museum. Can I ask you how you, how you learned beadwork? Yeah. Is it, did you teach so yourself? So I learned or? from elders because my grandmother, I love my grandmother, but she's not a good sewer. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I learned from elders that actually were not part of my tribe um, or not part of my nation. So I had the great fortune to work with um, co-workers at the Smithsonian, um, a lot of different nations and tribes, uh, Cherokee Nation, um, uh, Blackfeet. I, I had the good fortune of learning beadwork from elders because I was constantly around um, professional indigenous co-workers um, from all sorts of tribes and nations. And they kind of took me under their wing. Um, and I remember I during one of my lunch breaks, I started beadworking a, a little bag, just trying to get the stitches right, trying to get everything to not look so lopsided and my coworker next to me was like oh I'm, I'm going to a powwow can you bead me a little bandolier bag that I can have as part of my regalia and I was so excited that he wanted to wear something of mine that I just really it gave me validation and so I kept it up um I usually give my my work to as gifts um so I try if, if I know one of my friends is sad I will give them a patch or something that I've made that reminds me of them, whether it's using a flower of their favorite color or I've done animal paw prints that one of my, you know, zoologically inclined friends like. So <laughs> beadwork makes me happy. It connects me to people. It makes me feel, it makes me feel like I'm honoring um, the people that have come before me. And I never want these traditions to wane or to stop with me because I feel like then my ancestors their dreams won't be fulfilled. We are our ancestors' wildest dreams just by being here. And I think that's important. So that's what I want to keep doing with my beadwork. Amazing. Thank you for sharing mm -hmm. that. That's really amazing. Um, so did you want to, um, one of the things that we've talked about um, and you're, you're writing a bit about for the exhibition is um, the term two spirit. So mm -hmm. um, I do quite a lot of workshops um, with young LGBTQ um, plus people. Uh, and it amazes me because um, the the term two spirit seems to be really quite well known along, amongst um, British kids, which is which is great. Um, but I was just wondering, they um, often have a very um, quite simplistic idea of what two spirit means. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on on how would you describe two spirits uh, as maybe to a young person who might already be okay. using the term in the UK. And how, can you tell me really more about the meaning of the term? Mm -hmm. um, so. And these are my opinions on the term. I know there are a lot of different um, viewings of, of, of it because it's such a holistic term and it's so accessible to uh, native peoples and however you know they use them. So the term was originally coined in 1990 at a uh, conference in Winnipeg. It was the Indigenous Lesbian and Gay International Gathering. And it was proposed as a term to use instead of more Western terminology. So instead of um, saying, okay, well, this person is gay or this person is bisexual or something like that, indigenous people wanted to use a term that distanced themselves from Western settler terminology. And so we suggested the two-spirit term. And that term, some people use it as a stand-in for, for the other LGBT terms, but in my understanding and use of it, it's informed a little bit more from 
indigenous-rooted ceremonies and concepts, cultural concepts. So it, it's a little bit different than saying, well, this is just the native version of saying LGBT. Mm-hmm. To be honest, when I'm talking to non-natives, I kind of sometimes am lazy and I delegate that, <laughs> and that's what that means, because um, it's just a little bit more translatable. But indigenous communities um, have always had our own specific terms, and that's why there's some criticism with the use of two-spirit in that some communities, they already have words. Like um, in Lakota, you have the winkte, um, which means someone to become a woman. You have the nahle in Diné, which is a form of transformation of gender and sexuality. And then you have also words in Cree like iskwehekan, one who acts, lives as a woman, and all these different terms. So our communities do have a language to describe these different identities, which I think is important to hold on to. But some communities don't. Um, so I think it's important that while we recognize that two-spirit is a little bit more of a overreaching and I hate to say the word pan-Indian, but it, it's a little bit more holistic approach. Um, I think people should be able to use it, especially if they're disconnected natives. So two-spirit just basically means it's an identity, um, a little bit of an alternative identity to Western terminology of what it means to be straight, what it means to be cisgender, but it's informed by indigenous concepts and ceremonies. That was a whole lot of random stuff. I'm sorry. No, thank you. It's that's very complicated. It, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a thing that's rooted in identity, in clan culture, in roles, in so many different tangles. Um, but And to some, it can also just mean the... It, it, the indigenous version of LGBT. Mm. So it's however you, <laughs> however indigenous so people it, want to identify with it. How, how people are yeah. mobilizing the term. Yeah, probably um, doesn't help. But then again, people are people, and they're very of diverse. Course, yeah, of course, and and um, like you said, so some um, some nations have mm-hmm. uh, terminology that's, that's still in use. Um, some um, nations might not. But then I suppose that's that could be relating to the disconnect from colonialism mm-hmm. as well. So it's all incredibly incredibly yeah. complicated there and the, the loss of language and the threat to language mm-hmm. um, it mainly started too when anthropologists would go in and ethnographers would do work with these tribes and they would use certain outdated terms and the native community would then respond back with but that's not what that means you know that's not I, I'm not you know that that I'm not gay. I just do. I just do a certain. I just wear a certain ceremonial clothing. That you know. So there's all these dis- different discrepancies. So native people started to look back into their language, and say, "Well, actually, no. We do have a word for that. Oh, wow, we do. Let's use that." Some nations and some tribes don't. Sometimes a word is created, which I think is really great. So keeping that language up um, in proficiency and also keep adapting it and using it and I love it when I'll hear like oh this is the Anishinaabe word for TV or this is the you know it's so great. So and, and is um, the um, like reclaiming or developing of new language how might that be affecting um, contemporary ceremonies and practices is it or is it? So actually recently um, in Canada, I unfortunately can't remember what nation did it. Um, they had a sweat lodge ceremony, but in order to make the adolescent person comfortable, the adolescent person identified as, as a non-binary or an alternative gender. And so the ceremony language and 
all, mainly most of the logistics were changed to accommodate this young person. And I, I, I thought that was amazing. And it came from the initiative of elders. So there's that, always that tradition where, you know, the, the, old, the old generation doesn't want to change. But mm-hmm. the elders recognize that our youth need us. Our youth need to be taken care of. Ceremonies and medicines take care of our people. Everyone needs to be involved. Everyone needs to be accounted for, and everything needs to be accessible. And I think that's wonderful. Um, the nation that my own family is from, Manitoba uh, Métis Federation, they recently, in August, um, just issued a new Machif Two Spirit locale, headed by um, Two Spirit people, to do work with the Métis community and make sure. Everyone feels accounted for. Everyone feels loved, accepted. And I thought that was amazing. And these traditions are changing where you have um, jingle dancers and and certain two-spirit powwows. Anyone can do a jingle dance, which is traditionally a female form of dancing. It's a healing dance. Um, There's also a sweetheart couples dance where couples would dance um, (laughs) in their beautiful regalia. And recently there's been more... um, two-spirit couples joining in on that it's become less and less like weird it's 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 just it's wonderful um and especially when it comes from elders who are saying no this is this is just as traditional we've had these concepts we've had these languages um not to erase the fact that sometimes it is hard for indigenous youth to feel accepted if they do have a different identity um controversial to either their bands or the tribal law or just terminology of what they feel like they need to be but I feel like it is moving forward to reclaiming the past cultural ways of viewing our people that work to spirit and making them feel loved <laughs> that's really that's really really exciting it's um I think again going back to how I've heard young people in the UK using the term two spirit I think they found a lot of strength in the term because even if they haven't quite understood the complexity of, of the term and um, the different ways in which it might be used um, I think for the young people that I've worked with knowing that there is a history beyond the UK and beyond um, uh, Europe that there there's a legacy <laughs> for, for um, queer lives I think um, the young people I've worked with have found it really empowering and um, kind of aspirational too that they can see um, uh, their own identity reflected in other cultures so Thank you for explaining that so eloquently and with such detail. Um, what else would you like to share about what you've been up to? Well, just what you're talking about with the youth. And I love, um, I, I used to work in a museum and I would constantly be talking with kids. And um, I, I'm very involved in um, queer communities and projects and stuff of that nature. So sometimes, occasionally, I'll get an Indigenous um youth who's struggling with their identity and they're suggesting well you know is is my thinking this because it's a western concept is it a contemporary concept is this going against how i should be as an indigenous person and i just remember all the elders that have told me like who you are is traditional this this is not going against your ancestors wishes this is not going against your tribe's wishes your identity is just as traditional and just as valid as anyone else's and I think that gives us a lot of strength, especially when some people put it in the context of who you are is a gift from the creator. And a lot of indigenous communities um, recognize um, a creator like Kichi Manitua or something like that. And to have that strength, knowing that not only does your community have your back, your creator has your back, but your ancestors have your back. That is an incredibly powerful knowledge.
to carry with you. And so I always try to remember them. Like you, you're not in, you're not going against anything. You are right where you need to be. So yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That needs to be a quote on the wall in the exhibition. <laughs> Definitely. I've just really enjoyed learning from you actually. And um, having you as one of our community curators has been fantastic because I am, um, I, remember as a student I researched the um the octopus bag with Laura Pierce Professor Laura Pierce who um uh worked until recently at the Pit Rivers um and I found this bag absolutely fascinating as the meeting of cultures like like you said um but you for me you've completely um transformed how I see this object with bringing your in your own narratives and talking about the birth of a new nation um talking about how beadwork has supported you to explore your own identity and reconnect um with with your culture so um i just want to say thank you so much for sharing these stories with me and uh, that through the exhibition with a much wider public because i think it's so important for us all to see that these objects have multiple layers and multiple meanings and although this object is currently sitting in the pit rivers museum um it needs to be reaccessed by people um, beyond the curatorial staff at the, at the museum so thank you very much dan well, thank you to you and everyone working at the beyond the binary and the pit rivers at large because you've made this accessible and and a platform for these voices. I know everyone on the team is extremely just grateful to have this opportunity and it is it is viewing these objects as like coming home. When I first came to Oxford and my parents went to the museum while I was in classes and I got a hurried text from my dad with a picture of this bag saying, they have Métis stuff. And it was just so invigorating. No matter how far away you are from home, there's still those ways to make those connections. And so thank you to the Pit Rivers. And oh. thank, you, <laughs> thank you. Amazing. Folks, come and join us on Beyond the Binary because it's a really great, really great experience. Um, and did you want to say yeah. anything at the end? Okay. So, ni mohietan an ki kikitoan. So thank you. It's been nice talking to you. See you later.